America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Welcome to Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org, hosted by me, the number one best-selling author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Thing Radio, available on Amazon.com, as well as the Brush Beater Store, which went live last week. We have had uh, some record-setting days in terms of sales volume, and we're struggling to stay on top of that on my end. But definitely check it out, store.brushbeater.org. That's store.brushbeater.org. Got a lot of really cool products over there, including the exclusive Radio Recon Group t-shirt, which has been selling like crazy. And I have another order of those in now from the t-shirt company that I work with, and they should be in sometime soon. We're going to have new products up there as well. You can look for those announcements over on AmericanPartisan.org, as well as over on the Twitter feed, which you can follow me at BrushBeater. Handle is NC Scout Actual. That is at Brush Beater. And make sure you give a follow over there. All the content from AmericanPartisan.org, BrushBeater.org, as well as Radio Contra, which you are listening to right now, gets posted up over there. So you can get access to all of that stuff in real time as it is getting posted. So without further ado, I have a very special guest on the show today, and it is very, very good to be back with all of you. Of course, I had a very close friend out here, Kay, from Combat Studies Group that was teaching here at the Gorilla Camp. He was running Ground Rod 1 and 2, so Radio Contra was off the air for those classes to help facilitate those. And we had a massive crowd up here and it was incredible. But meanwhile, while all that was going on, a lot of news came out, a lot of the uh, the financial meltdown, maybe some of the early warning signs of financial meltdown were occurring. But one of the things that was extremely significant that came out was a statement on Capitol Hill by General Laura Richardson. And we're going to be diving into that today with my good friend, Matt, from Knightsbridge Research. And if you're not familiar with Knightsbridge, you need to be. They put out an incredible product. Definitely uh, the, the threats to the United States and things that, that on a global picture that need to be on your radar 
things that you need to be paying attention to and preparing for to get ahead of the storm. They've been on top of all of this. We've been in communication for some time now, and the stars have finally aligned, and I've got you here on the podcast, brother. Huge, huge thanks for being with us today. How are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. I uh, appreciate the invitation to be on the show with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We finally finally got the time to do it, man, because you, you're a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. We, you know, we're kind of <laughs> both running full steam ahead in many, many directions. And uh, something that I know that y'all have been tracking for a long time now and, you know, you've written products on and um, I've been tracking and, and have been paying very careful attention to is the situation that is developing among literally all of the nations south of the Rio, you know, south of the American border and the deterioration of the Monroe Doctrine and how this has been exploited for, you know, something close to 40 years now. And really, even further, if you count the Soviet influence in Central America, you know, goes back to at least the 1930s. Um, but the the rise of Marxism, the rise of, of uh, communism, and the pan-Latin American communism uh, is really coming to a head now and is being exploited in full by the Chinese as well as the Russians. And they are unified in a goal. They want to get rid of the United States. And so on Capitol Hill last week, uh, exactly one week ago, we had General Laura Rich Richardson. I've got to be very specific here. General Laura Richardson, who goes to Capitol Hill, is uh, giving a, a testimony on the state of uh, SOUTHCOM, which is the, the uh, United States Southern Command, uh, which is paying attention to everything south of the border. You know, of course, most of our listeners are familiar with U.S. Central Command, which has been um, kind of at the forefront of, of everything that's been going on you know, throughout the global war on terror. But Southcom is going to become very, very important, I think, in the coming years. And currently, General Richardson is in charge of that. So she's giving her assessment on Capitol Hill, and she's breaking it down. And I have to give her credit for uh, finally calling a spade a spade. Uh, but General Laura Jane Richardson, uh, the head of the U.S. Southern Command, told the House of Representatives this week, uh, which would have been last week, this is seven days old, that China continues to expand its influence in Latin America and manipulates its governments through predatory investment practices. She also underlined how the Asian power is interested in the region's lithium resources, particularly around the Argentine, Chilean, and Bolivian border. Richardson complained before the House Armed Services Committee about other countries profiting from the region's national uh, natural wealth. This region is full of resources, and I am concerned about the malign activity of our adversaries who are taking advantage of it, pretending they are investing when, in fact, they are extracting. Beijing continues to expand its economic, diplomatic, technological, informational, and military influence in Latin America and the Caribbean. China has the ability and the intent to promote its brand of authoritarianism and amass power and influence at the expense of these democracies. In her view, 
Chinese power has expanded its ability to extract resources, establish ports, manipulate governments through predatory investment practices, and build the potential dual-use space facilities. Um, I think that she is uh, a decade too late on these statements, uh, at a minimum. I think that our literally our ignoring of the developments in Cuba, the developments in Venezuela, the developments now in Colombia, where Gustavo Petro was literally handed the government, and we turned a blind eye to it. He immediately formalizes relations with China. Um, we turned a blind eye to Brazil. So Lula is now the president of Brazil, instantly normalizes relations with Iran the very day that he's in Washington, D.C. These are all very, very concerning developments, and it's something that we've been predicting. I know both you and I have been predicting this and, and you know, not so much predicting, but just saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. It's like when you see storm clouds on the horizon that are coming in, this is going to happen. Okay, these things are going to come to pass. You can kind of guess that, yeah, it's going to rain. Here, here it comes. So breaking it down from your end, as somebody who is well-educated on the topic, has been following this very, very carefully, has been turning out uh, great products on it. In your assessment, uh, her statements, which I hope, or I hope are being taken to heart by those in power in D.C., and really for the prepared citizens out there to say, hey, this is a threat. You know, the, the idea of our southern border invasion is a very, very serious thing. And it's something that it, it is an imminent national security threat that we have not paid careful enough attention to. And I don't think that we're capable of. In your assessment, break this down for us further. Where do you think that this stuff is headed? Um, how big is the threat here? And, and you know, what can we expect going forward? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question for sure. I would agree with you that uh, I hope our comments are being taken seriously on Capitol Hill. Uh, whether they are or not is anyone's guess, uh, to be completely honest. Um, but I do think that uh, it's good that at least she's making these, these pretty pointed statements, really. Um, but as far as the the overall picture, uh, man, what a great time to have this conversation because we're in the middle of a uh, a series of what we call closer look features, um, and we are in part three. <laughs> we just delivered part three uh, on the topic of China and Latin America to our subscribers. So we've uh, we've been doing a real deep dive into this over the last uh, month to six weeks or so, in particular, in preparation of this video series that we're doing. But I tell you, there's a really, there's a very familiar pattern um, that you can observe inside of Latin America um, and really across the world. But we're talking specifically about uh, Latam uh, with China. So they, they, they lead with investment. They always lead with investment, right? When they're beginning to establish diplomatic relations with these, with these various countries. So they always lead with investment, uh, maybe Belt and Road, maybe not. They're content to work with uh, countries that have not signed on to Belt and Road just to a, a lesser extent. So they lead with investment. They say we can we can give you uh, loans with with decent terms. We can invest in your infrastructure. Uh, we can invest in 
your uh, you know your commodity production. We can invest in roadways, transport hubs, things of that nature. And so going in initially, it looks like a pretty good deal, right? For for the uh, the countries there in Latin America. So they they sign these deals with China. Um, the deals are always focused on raw materials, commodities, and infrastructure, uh, because that's what China needs them to do to be able to ramp up production to then supply China. Um, but then there's also a potential military component that we'll get to later. <laughs> and, then, and then they extract as much uh, raw materials as they possibly can, right? So they're extracting these materials. You can go uh, country by country throughout Latin America and trade with China is always the same way. It's mass quantities of commodities going to China and uh, massive trade deficits too. And then you have uh, manufactured goods, pharmaceuticals, electronics coming back. Um, a lot of Huawei involvement down there as a part of that. Um, and then over time, they slowly try to form arms sales, military cooperation, and then eventually they're in a position where uh, one, they have uh, near dominant uh, control over a country when it comes to the economic picture. Uh, but then they're also in a position where uh, should that country fail and they take over ports, should the country not be able to repay debt, um, or even just should that country uh, desire a closer military alliance, China has a ready-made um, infrastructure system there that can support their military should that be needed. So this is the pattern, right? These are the steps that we see China take uh, all across Latin America. Um, and it's not new. I would say that it's uh, is really kicked into gear after 2001, 2002 or so um, with increasing intensity from then until now. So really you're talking the last 20 years or so, um, this pattern has been at play there with China. And, you know, each country in Latin America is a little bit a little bit different. The relationship with Colombia, for example, is very different than their relationship with Argentina. Right. These are these are certainly not the same. Um, Honduras is opening diplomatic relations or they intend to open diplomatic relations with China, uh, which they haven't had in the past because they've recognized Taiwan. Um, so there are some small countries here and there like Honduras that, that uh, are not yet. Uh, in this in this uh, trajectory with China, but uh, eventually, uh, China can bring so many resources to bear, so much investment to bear, um, that for a lot of these countries, many of whom are fairly impoverished, um, it, it's it's simply, uh, you know, the the um, the carrot is simply too uh, appealing to to walk away from. So that's the pattern. And then you know, General Richardson's comment, I, I completely agree. Uh, with her, that this is um, that this is a, a threat to the United States. Um, you know, when I was reading through her comments, the the day that she made them, she was really focusing on um, China, uh, if I remember correctly, promoting its brand of authoritarianism and amass power and influence at the expense of these these nations. Right, that's a rough quote, anyway. Um, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're expanding their own brand of authoritarianism into Latin America while extracting as many resources as they possibly can. Um, lithium triangle is a big part of that, but uh, I'm sure we can get to that later and <laughs> later on. So uh, you asked the broad question. So I gave you a broad answer. <laughs> hey man. Yeah, no. And, and, and that's, uh, 
it, I think that that's a spot on breakdown of the larger picture and something I want to dive deeper into. So, you know, the, the mineral futures market is, is huge. And that's something that I don't think gets very much attention. Um, I, I just don't see a lot of people, especially, um, in the preparedness community and, and even in, in uh, long-term investment communities, which, you know, I pay careful attention to as well. We're not really paying much attention to these things. And, um, one of the, the things that, that I criticize a lot of uh, thinkers out there who say, well, you know, China is not that big of a deal. China is going to implode by 2050, which is kind of a prevailing, extremely flawed theory uh, out there because it's, it's it's one of those theories that if this, then that um, doesn't account for our own flaws. And one of the big ones is a shortage of rare earth minerals which we are not staying on top of. There's a frequent assessment uh, and an assumption that's made that, well, we can just jump right back into manufacturing whenever we want. Can we? Uh, Because the the war in Ukraine has proven several things, but one of them is that our manufacturing capability cannot simply just spin back up whenever we want it to. And, um, Now, what I will say, though, as a concession to that argument is that the longer the war in Ukraine goes on, the better our manufacturing capability will be at gearing up for wartime production. And so that that preemptive window from both the Russians and the Chinese is closing and and probably will close within the next few years. Um, before our, our manufacturing capability ramps up back to its pre-global war on terror levels where it can crank out armored vehicles and it can crank out, uh, we'll say, javelins and HIMARS and, and the high technology-based equipment. But that's all also predicated on things like lithium, right, that we need. Chip production, which the bulk of our chip production that we utilize We are repatriating that, but a lot of that's built in Taiwan. Indonesia is another source of that. And these are all under the sphere of influence of the Chinese. You know, there's a a very credible threat uh, against Taiwan, and we don't have a competent answer with the, the potential defense of Taiwan. Then when you throw in the mix that we have lost pretty much all of our influence from Mexico going south, that's another pool of resources that we've lost. Uh, Africa, we have very, very little influence in Africa, and our in, what influence we do have there is continuing to wane. Um, there is some pushback against uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative there, but they're going to continue to to exploit it. I mean, Ghana is a, a great example of that. Uh, Ghana was given, you know, just just as as you were explaining, Ghana was given many billions of dollars in infrastructure loans that the Chinese government never intended for Ghana to be able to pay back. And now the Ghanans have realized that they were never meant to pay those loans back, and now much of their national infrastructure has been. Uh, pretty much subsidized by the Chinese government. 
and they're in claiming dominion over it. And the Ghanans are, are up in arms. What are you going to do about it? They own it now. They own your rail infrastructure. They own your air infrastructure, your airports, your, they own, they own your power grid. What are you going to do about it now? Are you going to be able to push it out? Are you going to be able to push that influence out? The answer is likely no, right? Likely not, not in our lifetimes. It's not going to happen because it took an entire lifetime, you know, 60 years of Chinese influence starting in the, the Bush Wars of, of Mozambique and Angola and Rhodesia, right, of, of Chinese influence that we helped, we aided, okay? There's many, many examples of this, and now this has come back to bite us, right? So, so we've lost these pools of resources across, if, if we looked at it as a giant game of risk, we've lost these pools of resources across the globe. and much of our, our manufacturing and our technological superiority is hinged upon that. Now those pools of resources aren't necessarily there. The Chinese can cut those off. So what they lack maybe in, in current force projection and maybe what they lack necessarily in um, a, a, a expected population decline, this, you know, it, which may be a thing, demographic collapse on, on their part, due to, to bad policies, the one-child policy may, may become a thing, right? But then again, maybe not. We may be experiencing our own demographic collapse, and people don't really want to address that one. So in, intersped into the mix, where I'm going with that is, is that we have a large influx of Latin American culture coming from south of the border, and primarily the Central American countries, although now we have Cuba we have Venezuela, we have Colombia. Now we have a lot of uh, people that are coming from those countries as well who are rushing the border, right? They're taking advantage of the situation that we created, that our government created here at home. How is China prepared to exploit that? Because both the Chinese and the Russians have made very clear statements Um that they intend on exploiting that. And the Chinese have made moves that they intend on exploiting that. So break down where you see this all going and how this exploitation is going to continue and what we're doing um, or and what they're doing rather moving forward and what we're doing in response or what we should be doing in response. Yeah, sure. So, you know, China has every incentive to continue uh, to pull commodities and raw materials out of Latin America. It's a, it's a willing partner for the most part. Uh, most countries are, are willing partners to that. A lot of countries in Latin America are seeing, um, you know, their standard of living raised a little bit. They're seeing a little bit more income for the average citizen because of uh, sales to China, exports to China. Um, they're also seeing very cheap imports of manufactured goods. So these governments can draw closer to China and then they can turn around and pitch that to their own people as, look, your standard of living is being raised. And it is. That is a true statement for the most part. It's temporary, however, um, because eventually what happens is you, you're in a situation similar to, to Ghana, right, where you've taken on massive investment. Maybe you can repay it. Maybe you can't. Um, 
but eventually China's going to end up owning much of your infrastructure and especially uh, more your more valuable uh, mining operations, right? So uh, for example, um, the, the lithium triangle that we've talked about, right? Uh, Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina, lithium is, lithium is white gold. It is the future when it comes to anything uh, uh, high tech, right? Um, everything from fighter jets to batteries need lithium. Uh, and the U.S. needs a lot of lith lithium. Well, 60% of the world's lithium is there in Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina. Um, China refines over 60% of the world's lithium. So it's being mined in raw form in those three countries and then being sent over to China, who's refining it into something useful. Um, Bolivia has the most. They have 21 megatons, um, followed by Argentina at 19. And then Chile has just under 10. But the availability of that lithium is actually flipped. So Chile has the least amount total, um, but it's easier to mine. It's easy to get to. And then Argentina uh, is in the middle. And then Bolivia has the largest reserves, but it's very difficult to access, right? But I'm, I'm using lithium just as an example of how China operates. So the first thing they do is they go into Chile, heavy with investment, right? Grab, those lo grab the low-hanging fruit, right? Uh, build out the ports, build the infrastructure, invest heavily, specifically so that they can access the, the, the low-hanging fruit of the lithium that is there in Chile, right? And so then, and then they, as things get progressively harder, they move on. So they're, they're making investment in uh, Bolivia and Argentina in anticipation of, well, eventually Chile is going to run dry when it comes to lithium. We're going to move into these other countries. But you can see that in any, any commodity you're interested in, right? Um, Brazil uh, was already producing mass quantities of beef. So they start investing into that, uh, that industry there in Brazil so that that can be exported to China. Um, but then there's other countries that, that weren't really producing a lot of, of protein for China. So while they've got the low hanging fruit of Brazil going, they then go to these other countries, start investing in that so that eventually if something happens with Brazil, um, they can, they can import beef from Argentina, for example, and these other countries and, and that's pick a commodity and that's what they do. The end result of that is the low hanging fruits going to be consumed, right? Um, the, the second and third level uh, commodities that are more difficult to access or that require more investment uh, are going to be built up. Um, but by the time you get, you know, 10, 15 years into this cycle, um, your economy is completely dependent upon China at, this, at that juncture, right? You, you export so much to China that China can essentially demand what it wishes to demand. Uh, and there's not going to be much you can do about it unless you want to see your exports crash 30, 40, 50 percent or even more. Um, so that's the cycle. Uh, and that's what China's doing right now. Now, on the U.S. side, we aren't taking as predatory of an approach as that. Right. Which when you have a, when you have a China who's willing to uh, who's willing to make massive investment maybe under predatory circumstances, but they're willing to go out and give it their best shot and they're willing to pour money into these countries. Well, that's one side. And then the other side is the United States. And we're a little more conservative about that. We have a lot of, there's a lot of laws and legalities about uh, how we can lend and what we can lend and under what circumstances, what the terms have to be. 
uh, where it's a much more fair deal, but it's also less money. It's a lot slower. And then there's a lot of projects we're just not going to bid on. We're not going to bid. American companies are not going to bid on infrastructure product project X. But in China, there's 14 companies bidding on it. So China's going to get the bid, right? And so you just see that where the, the U.S., yes, we have a lot more rules and regulations that protect those we're lending to and protect those we're working with. But that's not necessarily something that they're interested in when it's going to take 10 years uh, and uh, you may or may not finally get approval, et cetera. And China's coming in saying we can do this in two. Well, especially for a politician, you're going to take the deal from China virtually every time. You're only going to be in office a handful of years anyway. So you take the deal. Uh, there's a lot of kickbacks and bribery and such that go on with these deals. So you take the deal, you build the infrastructure, your people are happy temporarily. You know, you don't care that your country's being strip mined more or less by China because you're going to be out of the picture anyway by the time the birds come home to roost. Right. So China's dominating uh, the commodity markets uh, down there, at least right now. And I will say this, too. Right now, if you look at the total economy of Latin America, right, everything south of the U.S. border, the U.S. still uh, has, if you just look at trade overall, we still do slightly more trade with all of Latin America than China does, just by a couple of percent. Um, so, but the key player is Mexico. If you take Mexico out, China's dominant over the United States when it comes to trade in Latin America. Mexico is the only thing that's keeping U.S. slightly ahead of China when it comes to the, the big picture numbers, right? Um, so because Mexico is a, you know, does a massive amount of trade with the United States. Um, so really anything south of Mexico, more or less, is, is pretty dominated by China. Honduras is an exception, but they're starting to open diplomatic relations. Colombia actually is something of an exception. Um, Colombia is a major non-NATO uh, partner of the United States down there. And so Colombia is still pretty well aligned with the U.S., but that's changing as well. Um, the president yep. is putting some very pro-China officials uh, at very high levels um, inside of his government, uh, specifically the foreign minister, their ambassador to China, uh, grew up in China, actually, um, and was there during the communist revolution, even, uh, or his parents were as well. So that's changing in Colombia, but um, it's not looking great for the United States. Um, uh, so going back to General Richardson, I, I wholeheartedly agree with her comments. Um, I think they were clear eyed. They were uh, an accurate assessment of what's going on in Latin America right now. Uh, and I certainly hope that uh, someone's going to listen. <laughs> I hope that, that uh, we get our act together a little bit more. But again, we're slow and China's fast. We, we are. And and it making meaningful change in our policies in Latin America are predicated upon some political inconveniences, especially on part of the Democrat Party, because the Democrat Party is perfectly fine with importing uh, a, a large number of inexperienced laborers or inexpensive laborers, I should say, um, they, they are perfectly fine with that because this is a, an entire class of people that they can very easily exploit. It's the same with the Republicans. You know, if, if we can bring in an inexpensive labor force, then we can profiteer off of that. And so we've seen it from both angles. It's convenient for both parties. Uh, the Democrats get, get a voter base. And meanwhile, 
uh, Americans who are clamoring for even basic services, basic qualities of life here in the United States that are increasingly being denied to them. Um, you know, East Palestine, Ohio is a perfect example of this. It's already out of the news cycle. Um, they were de- they were denied repeatedly basic, just a basic response from FEMA, basic disaster relief protocols that would have been granted many other places. There's some political inconveniences there, and they, uh, you know, and it, it kind of got swept under the rug. Of course, you know, th- this is coming from an administration that is also very much in bed with Marxian uh, politics and and are very, very comfortable existing within that space and within those talking points. Uh, so for the Democrats to come up with a competent response to our policies in South America um, and, and or the Chinese expanding influence in South America, it's very, very uh, politically inconvenient for them to do that, uh, especially when they, they parade around the likes of Asada Shakur as heroes, at least at the street level, uh, who is regarded as a hero in Cuba for her. Uh, terrorist activities in the United States and um, against uh, the power structure as uh, u- utilizing their words. And she's regarded and, and fled to Cuba. She's, she's a hero to them. Right. Um, this has long since been uh, politically talking points that the Soviet union has used um, and, and have used and Marxists in the United States, which comprise the thought process and the decision-making of the Democrats at now the national party level, they have a very hard time admitting that there's even a problem and you, you have to, before you can make measurable change. Now the Trump administration um, had pivoted to gaining greater influence in Latin America. And that of course went by the wayside uh, with the change in administration and they once more return to turning a blind eye to that. Of course, we know that the Biden administration is uh, uh, fraught with quite a bit of Chinese money that has come in uh, through various means and in various ways. And, and that that part is literally indisputable. I know that I'll probably get some comments out there, some emails. People will send me some comments on Twitter from all the no-betters that will normally have Ukrainian flags in their bio. And they'll move to say, well, but, oh, no, China, but that hasn't been proven. <laughs> yes, it has. Um, and, and it's, well, heaven, it's, heaven forbid you get nasty comments on Twitter. Oh, I know. I, I'll just melt down. Oh, why? Whatever will I do? Um, yeah. Yeah. Says, says the Southern gentleman. Why? Whatever will I do? <laughs> why? Whatever do you mean? But uh, you know, it, it, it. But it it paints a broader picture that that the elite capture here in the United States, and and I call it for both sides of the aisle. The Republicans are guilty of it as well, just not to the extent the Democrats are. Um, yeah, they, you know, it, it's there. There's very clear evidence, especially at the top of the food chain in the Republican Party. Um, your rhinos out there, uh, the Mitch McConnell's of the world, they've definitely received quite a bit in terms of Chinese money. Uh, Smithfield Foods, when uh, we were talking about um, the 
when when you said um, it brought up a very important point. China it lacks in its ability to feed itself, and they have to import quite a bit of food. Well, one of the talking points that I've seen from politicos out there is, well, look at how much they import from the United States in terms of food, right? In terms of food, look at how much they import. Well, that's kind of a loaded question because if you talk about raw exports and making the the generalization that each of those exports are from American-owned companies, then you would be correct. However, the Chinese have made great pains to circumvent that process by buying up American companies that export foods, most notably Smithfield. Uh, which here in North Carolina was huge news when it happened. And they are the number three or number four. Uh, I, I'm just speaking off the cuff here. But food producer in the world, particularly in pork, they're huge. This is a huge industry. The Chinese bought it. So yeah. controlling that much of the sector of food production here in the United States, as well as what's being exported, that is an indicator of a very serious level of organization, forethought, in the process of elite capture. And this is right. what we have. And so if people are not concerned by that, if you're simply looking at the talking points that you get from the flyby news out there, well, uh, I would like to make a counterpoint. <laughs> no, um, you're ignoring the reality here. And this isn't alarmism. This is something that is very serious. Now, who is being employed by these companies? The very same exploited labor that they are bringing across the border, right? It's that very same, that very same pool of people that they're bringing in. They're not getting treated to a better life, by the way. I don't care what the Democrats say and what some bleeding hearts out there say. They're not getting treated to a better life. You know, working 13 hours a day, in a meat packing plant, that ain't a better life, man. It it's not. Okay. Well, I, I've and seen the, turno the, the turnover in those uh meat packing plants is pretty incredible as well because the conditions yep. are extremely harsh. There there's a it's a rough place to work. So Smithfield yeah. in particular, if you if you start digging into their turnover rates, they're extremely high. Um right. so yeah, a lot of it a lot of it is that that labor force, that kind of that transient labor force right um that's a that's a huge part of it for sure um i will say so, too i mean i sorry go ahead no no no. go ahead brother go ahead okay i will say too that um just when you look at this pattern by china um you know really all of this started this entire process we're talking about started um back when china uh was admitted to the world trade organization in 2001 and I think two things happened that that really um, solidified this trajectory of China becoming more dominant in Latin America. And so one was they ascended to the World Trade Organization. But the second thing is that after 9-11 happened, the U.S. pivoted so heavily toward the Middle East that we completely lost track of our southern neighbors. Right. And and, you know, President Bush, if you remember, President Bush campaigned on one of his big uh, campaign talking points was that he was going to re-emphasize investment in Latin America before he was elected the first time. That was a big talking point for him. 
that we were going to to refocus, you know, all this type of thing on Latin America. Well, I I do believe that that was likely his intent, but then 9-11 happened. So you had China ascending to the WTO and 9-11, just uh, what, three months apart? (laughs) So when those things happen, and you can validate this by looking at uh, Latin American trade with China, um, around 2001, it was virtually nothing virtually no presence in Latin America. Um, Virtually all of those countries recognized Taiwan, not China, outside of, I think, two recognized China in all of Latin America at that point. But we had so heavily shifted to the Middle East for 20 years that it left the door wide open. It's it's a bigger picture of when we, uh, you know, we pulled out of Iraq the way we did and ISIS grew. We pulled out of Afghanistan rapidly and the Taliban took over, right? Anytime you, uh, as the dominant global figure, anytime you lose focus on a certain area, you leave a power vacuum and someone's going to fill it. Well, just as we've seen in the Middle East, when the military leaves a power vacuum, we've seen the same thing in Latin America, where we've left an economic power vacuum. And all of these countries have pivoted to the next available resource, the next uh, big uh, powerhouse coming in offering investment and trade and things of that nature. And that happens to be China. Um, if that had been Russia, then they would have gone that direction. But but if you're running a country in Latin America, you need investment. You you know, you know don't want to uh, remain where you are. So sometimes you uh, make <laughs> bad deals uh, for short-term benefit. And, and so a lot of the issue, I think, down in, in Latin America when it comes to Chinese investment and such, a lot of that is simply brought about because the U.S. took their eye off the ball. We just did. We quit investing so much. Uh, we pivoted so heavily that Latin America really felt left behind um, outside of a few partners like Colombia. Colombia is kind of the outlier there and, and Mexico, obviously. But um, right. but outside of those two, we more or less walked away. And then it led to Chinese investment, et cetera, et cetera. But it also gave China um, an idea that the U.S., maybe is a little more vulnerable than they thought we were because of how easy it was to peel away some of these countries like Argentina, you know, forming BRICS with Brazil, obviously the B in BRICS, et cetera. Um, and I think that that is, is had a follow-on effect of emboldening China um, to behave a little more aggressively elsewhere in other parts of the world. Um, and, and it's emboldening China to uh, aggressively come after the U.S. not militarily but economically, uh, which eventually can lead to something militarily. So it, that's you know uh, on a macro um, on a macro level, a lot of the issues that we're seeing now are, are a direct result of that sequence of events. At least I'd from, agree from where I sit. <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah. percent, man. Um, particularly concerning with all this is Colombia uh, because mm-hmm. with Lula cut or uh, that Lula is Brazil with Gustavo Petro's yeah. election. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lula, of course, is very concerning as well. Kind of a, a follow on to the election of Gustavo Petro, which I've followed very closely because late in the Trump administration, we had two, uh, attempts at regime change, one in Venezuela, of course, um, that was probably the more serious of the two and uh, leading to uh, 
uh, Juan Guaido, who was the opposition party uh, attempting to form a government in exile and uh, even coming to the State of the Union address, uh, the last State of the Union address that that uh, President Donald Trump gave. Um, you know, this, of course, uh, a lot of his loyalists, the uh, flannel shirt soldiers rebellion, which uh, uh, migrated across the border over into Colombia. And then, of course, um, you know, the passing of the political football that is ELN, um, that, that the Venezuelans said that they weren't supporting. And then a faction that was claiming to be part of the ELN began attacking the Venezuelan troops that were on the border. This was kind of an interesting. It was an interesting time in the, the rocky relationship between Colombia and Venezuela. And then with the election of Gustavo Petro, which, you know, up until that point in the, uh, the, the late days of the Donald Trump presidency, uh, Nikki Haley, who was the ambassador at the time uh, to the United Nations, was leading an effort down there to, to maintain American hegemony. Um, obviously, it didn't work because with the Biden administration, they turned a blind eye to it. And we ended up with who we ended up with. Uh, down there, who is rapidly deteriorating, and, and I'm hearing this from uh, a lot of people who have connections in Colombia. You know that they are rapidly deteriorating those those ties to the United States that have been very very strong in their fight against Marxism. And the Russians and the Chinese are waiting with open arms. You know the Venezuelans. They, you know, we, there was an attempt at regime change there. It was the more serious of the two attempts. Um, between them and Cuba, and it didn't pan out. Uh, it didn't pan out because the support wasn't there. And, and um, you know, this, this is, at least in my opinion, there are some other guys, uh, you know, former IC folks out there and stuff that I can cons- uh, converse with fairly regularly who agree. <laughs> what in the world was that? Sorry about that. That's a uh, weather alert on my. Oh, radio. okay. I'm gonna go okay. mute it. Keep keep going. I'm gonna go mute it. <laughs> no worries. No worries. But um, the the uh, deteriorating conditions of Venezuela, the economic conditions that that was kind of ripe for us to take advantage of that, and we we really didn't put our weight behind it uh, the way that we needed to. What was necessary. And the Venezuelan people suffered as, as a result. Same occurred in Cuba. Um, you know, you, you had Fidel Castro, who to the Cuban uh, hardline communists were, uh, you know, the, the Castro brothers were really a symbol of power. And even though there, there were uh, so many failures with the Cuban communist system, uh, that, that were no better than their life under Batista, unfortunately. The, a lot of your hardline communists were supportive of him. But as they began to age out, you have this young population there. And it was a golden time for us to say, hey, they've got a new leader coming in. This is a guy who hasn't really established himself. This is our opportunity. And we can have regime change in Cuba as well for freedom. And it was kind of a half-hearted attempt at it. I don't know if anybody in D.C. really thought that that this was going to get off the ground. I mean, a lot of people had high hopes. 
and um, you know the the color revolution, the the ground up style of regime change of of social activism for freedom didn't occur. Um, you know, th- there was a lot of your mass protests, but it did not graduate from that phase, unfortunately. The reality with that is, is that the Russians and Chinese were there to bolster their allies who are the governments of those nations. And all it did in our failures was it increased their presence there. It increased their dominion there. And I think that going forward, it's just a a prediction of mine. I think that going forward, as a result, we saw Wagner Group entrench itself in Venezuela as a type of foreign internal defense mission. We also saw the Chinese intelligence apparatus entrench itself there as well. There were strategic weapons that were moved to Caracas, Venezuela. This occurred in 2018. It's open source. The documents are out there. I documented this on AmericanPartisan.org. It's there. If you look up the Blackjack Bomber Squadron, which was moved from Russia to Caracas, Venezuela, it never returned. All right, it never returned. This became a base of operations, a future beachhead there. And when you look at the election of Lula in Brazil, Gustavo Petro in Colombia, they are creating a much broader picture here. The fact that um, the, uh, the, the power structure in Argentina very much favors both China and Russia as well. These, this is not painting a, a good picture for the United States long term. Now, something that you said that was extremely significant was that Mexico, with all of its problems, despite all of its problems, is a bastion, right? That that they're kind of the the last remaining um, thing that is keeping the United States ahead in terms of trade. Well, there's a story out there, a bit of a the internet rumor mill, which um, you know, take it with a giant grain of salt. But it is not outside of the realm of possibility or even something that is plausible that Mexico is in talks to join with BRICS sometime in the future. Now, some of the alarmists out there have said, well, Mexico's joined BRICS and they're going to be completely aligned with, 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 with you know, its own record. They're going to be aligned with the Chinese. And, and there is a large amount of Chinese investment that has occurred. In Mexico, but to say that they have they, they they're signatories now to the BRICS uh, economic alignment, I think is a bit of a stretch. But let's say we live in a world where this is because it's plausible, where this is um, a reality. It has become a reality. What does that mean for the United States? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. and Mexico are are hugely significant trade partners. There's no denying that. Um, the interesting thing about if, if Mexico were to, uh, to pivot uh, to that extent um, towards, uh, towards China and, and BRICS in general is um, what, what's the U.S. response to that? You know, where, where do we go to, uh, to reinforce our own um, our own influence in the region. And I think the answer is nowhere. <laughs> There's nowhere uh, in, in that vicinity and in that region where the U.S. could um, could pull um, 
other countries kind of back into its own orbit, right? Um, now, as far as, you know, there, there's military considerations, right, of if China were to be heavily influential inside of Mexico um, that are obviously a concern. Um, BRICS doesn't necessarily mean a military alignment, um, but again, like we talked about at the very beginning, uh, China is always trying to use economic development for eventual military use. Um, that's just the, the facts of the matter. Um, so, uh, you know, if you do see something like that happen, I think that it's, you know, it does, it's not going to have an immediate impact, but it is something that's going to have um, some type of very negative impact for the United States down the road. Now, you know, you look at Brazil, for example, just to use as an example, they, you know, they're one of the founding members of BRICS. They still do a lot of trade with the United States, right? They, they still do. They, um, there's a huge uh, amount of economic activity between the U.S. and Brazil. So it's not like it, things fall off a cliff immediately. Um, but for Mexico to join BRICS would certainly, uh, should that happen, would certainly indicate the direction they intend to head. And AMLO is no fan of the United States, the, uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador. Um, he's certainly no fan of the United States of America. And, you know, they've had this little spat recently about the Americans that were killed just south of the border. And you've got uh, U.S. senators and representatives saying send in the military against the cartels and things like that. Um, that's yeah. whether that's a good move or not. I, I would argue strongly that that would be a terrible move. Uh, but those guys, that, those guys that found out, yeah, they ain't worth military intervention. <laughs> I tell you, I, I, I can I think, tell you that that that's something that I could do a whole other episode breaking that down. Yeah. Um, they they were from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. They weren't down there for, you know, margaritas and sunshine. <laughs> um, nah, man, that yeah. was no. But, but there's, really, there's almost, a lot more to that story. But oh, yeah, I think so. Didn't too. mean to but, derail it. No, no, you're good. You're good. But even in spite of all that, like almost regardless of who they were or why they were there. Right. The, yes, there were some American citizens killed. But then the the reaction to that among people in Congress, uh, some was, well, we need to be doing strikes on the cartel. And AMLO, uh, with his personality, with his political leanings, is only using that type of right. thing to uh, to drag the U.S. in front of his own people, right? So when you see things like that, it may, it may be one of those things that people think a year from now is not going to matter. But those things do actually matter in the calculus of uh, do we pivot to the U.S. or do we pivot to China or or what's the uh, what's the big picture here? Especially with AMLO because his personality that he's not going to stand for something like that. So whether or not Mexico applies for BRICS or eventually joins BRICS, it, it is what it is. It, it may or may not happen. Uh, like you said, it's kind of an internet rumor mill thing right now. Um, but at the same time. Uh, eventually Mexico is probably headed that direction. And and I think that uh, for all of China's incursions into Latin America, if they're able to peel Mexico away from the United States in a significant manner, um, that's going to have a, a lot more second and third order effects on American life than, than most people are going to realize, right? Um, most people are not even going to recognize, okay, they Mexico joined BRICS. What what even is BRICS, right? The average American citizen is going to have no idea of the significance of it. But if you peel Mexico away, 
um, suddenly uh, the U.S. is looking a, a lot weaker when it comes to the, our southern border, when it comes to our trade uh, with all of Latin America. Um, it's just a, not a good situation for us. And, you know, the U.S. needs to uh, rectify whatever situation they have with Mexico. The U.S. needs to pivot hard towards Mexico before that happens. Um, because just because they've applied doesn't mean they're going to gain interest. There are a lot of countries who have applied to join BRICS uh, whose applications sit there and pin for a couple of years. Um, so there is still time for the U.S. to rectify that situation with Mexico. Whether we will or not kind of remains to be seen because, again, just like we pivoted away from Latin America in the early 2000s, right now the U.S. is heavily focused on Ukraine, the war in Ukraine and Russia and everything going on over there, while also looking uh, to the future, uh, as multiple generals have pointed out in uh, recent comments before Congress, uh, there's a there's a thought that once the war in Ukraine finalizes, uh, we need to pivot really heavily toward the Western Pacific. Um, and we're already starting to pivot that direction. And so again, once again, you could see just a lack of American focus in Latin America. Uh, and so you could see the same cycle play out all over again. Um, and and I, I fear that that's a likely scenario. Yeah, I would agree. And, and it's it's not a good scenario for America, for the American people. And, and we're finding ourselves really in a perpetual state of war that's yes. due to our political malfeasance. You know, due to the I mean, due short sightedness on both parties. But primarily the Democrats. I mean, when the World Trade Organization was founded, when when it really found its legs, the Democrats were the ones that were running the show. All right. Sure. That's it, it's it's not this isn't something that, that is really up for debate. It is a political right. fact. Um, and the idea it was very convenient for big business to take advantage of that because they could exploit cheap labor. The communists, on the other hand, exploited it because it was a way for them to become wealthy. Mm -hmm. And they knew that they, they could repatriate a large amount of wealth and use that to expand their influence abroad. And in the larger goal of taking down, in their terms, the, the capitalist, imperialist United States, the last bastion, the Constitution of the United States was the last bastion against their global communist revolution and leading up to a one world government. And that's what they're working towards. Yes. That is why that is so important for people to stay on top of this and to stay engaged and understand where this is going, you know, for, because I know like, like huge fan of, of Ron Paul and um, you know, as, as a libertarian, a lot of people in, in, you know, uh, our community out there, the, the libertarian end of things say, well, you know, if, if America could just be isolationist, it's like that that's the goal we want to work towards. However, however, the reality of this situation is, is that that that's not something that we necessarily can do in immediately. We can't just yes. shut everything off immediately because it's going to be very much to our detriment. It needs to be a managed thing where we repatriate ourselves and our funds and our capability to defend our own borders back here at home. And, um, you know, the, the thing is that I think that unfortunately we're running out of time on that because, you know, something you said that was very important was um, when 
when the war in Ukraine comes to a negotiated settlement, I don't, I'm not so sure. Of course, we don't know all the pieces. We're, we're never going to quite have an, uh, a completely accurate picture on that. Right. I'm not so sure that there will be. Uh, I know that China is trying to do a, a negotiated settlement in talks with uh, both Zelensky and Putin to create a, a type of two-state solution. But I'm not so sure that that's going to happen. I don't think that the United States is going to allow that to happen. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure that's going to happen either, because uh, right now, um, Zelensky is very dug in on uh, we will take back all of Ukraine, including Crimea. And, uh, you know, Russia is very, very much convinced that no matter what happens, they will not lose Crimea, <laughs> even if they are pushed back. Um, so to me, Crimea is, a, is just a sticking point that's never going to go away. Um, I do think it's interesting. I, well, I'll say this, too. Um, as an analyst the other day, and basically our analysis for our private clients since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, this second go round that started in 2022 anyway, our analysis from the beginning has been uh, no nuclear use by Russia unless Ukraine threatens Crimea. If Ukraine threatens Crimea, all bets are off. That is the, the scenario in which per our analysis for over a year now, uh, Russia's most likely to use nuclear weapons, uh, specifically against Ukraine. I'm not saying full-on nuclear war against NATO, but but that scenario is one in which someone's going to have to back down. Um, because Russia, I, I do not believe that Russia is capable of taking all of Ukraine, nor do I believe that Ukraine is capable of taking back its own territory plus Crimea. So both sides are saying, you know, they're not going to uh, Russia saying they're not going to stop until they achieve their strategic goals, which, by the way, change about every 30 days, <laughs> apparently. Um, and then Ukraine is saying they're not going to stop until they take back what's what's theirs. Someone's going to give somewhere and you have to put up a, a strong front like that in your rhetoric when you're in, in, you know, when you're in the midst of a war. You have to do that for domestic purposes, et cetera. Um, but where the line ends up being drawn between the two is kind of up for grabs. I do think that the West is incentivized to uh, continue the war because one of the effects that of the war is that Russia is being ground down to a pretty significant extent by Western weapons, but not by Western blood. And for NATO, that's a there's a huge benefit there to seeing Russian troops, uh, 100,000 plus Russian troops dead and a huge amounts of equipment. They're rolling T-62s out of mothballs, patching them up and sending them to fight in Ukraine, right? So you've got a scenario there that I think I agree with you that I don't necessarily believe the West has any incentive to allow the war to stop. Right. Right. I'd agree completely. And man, we could do an entire other show breaking down Ukraine. And I would love to. I would absolutely love to. And I think that we need to do yep. that in, in the very near future of, of where all this stuff is going. Brother, it has been an absolute honor to get you on. I am just so, so glad that we finally, we, you know, we both buckled down. and was like, hey, we got to make this happen. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, here you are. And we're definitely going to get you on again very, very soon to break those down, man. 
giving us a, a uh, complete and stone-cold sober analysis of exactly what's going on to the south of U.S. hegemony and how China and Russia are looking to exploit that. Brother, thank you for being on. Where can people find you? Yeah, I, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, like you said, we've been trying to do this for a couple of months now, so I'm glad we finally made it happen. Uh, you can find us on our website at knightsbridge.ltd. Um, we have two sides of the company if you're interested in our private services. Um, there is a page for that. Most of our business is with private clients. Uh, if you are a member of the public and you want a, a overall unbiased, uh, right down the middle uh, perspective on world events, including uh, we do dynamic mapping that we provide, uh, et cetera. We, we're a team of about 25 analysts uh, and we provide daily updates on what we call the global uh, hotspots. So we cover China, Taiwan, we cover Russia, Ukraine, NATO, we cover the Middle East, we cover Latin America, we cover Europe. Uh, if there is something going on that could be potentially relevant to your life as an American, we will cover that for you. And we'll do it every single day. Uh, well, five days a week, I should say. <laughs> and we'll deliver uh, weekly live briefings where you can ask us any question you want to about uh, literally anything that's going on in the world. And our database is so massive at this point that we'll have a good answer for you. So that's what we provide to the public. Um, uh, we believe at a reasonable price. Uh, if you go to knightsbridge.ltd and take a look and you like what you see, um, if you put in coupon code SCOUT, we'll give you a free month to try us out. No strings attached. Right on. Right on. And that's news to me, man. That is news <laughs> to me, but that is very cool. So you heard it. You heard it straight from the horse's mouth. Um, code promo code scout looking forward right. to that i'm gonna i'm gonna definitely get over there and uh take a look at those products as well because you know it, every every piece of information every source of information uh that you have access to out there is critical in our day-to-day -day lives of staying ahead of the curve in terms of what's coming um that's right know, there's, there's man there, there's so much economic uncertainty out there uh, Credit Suisse implosion right now, the SVB implosion, of course, which was, um, you know, kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of the the econ types out there. You know, the Jim Cramers of the world, they were saying, yes. oh, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, SVB friggin' implodes. Um, yep. Credit Suisse kind of was on borrowed time. I think everybody knew that. But th these these are all things because wars Great conflict follow economics and economics yes. follow great conflicts, right? And follows warfare. And here at home, we got a whole lot to be concerned about on our end. And so every avenue of approach that you can create for yourself to stay ahead of the information curve is thus going to become critical. Uh, quick word for the show sponsors out there. Jack Lawson, CivilDefense.com, CivilDefenseManual.com, rather. Uh, Two-volume set. I wrote the communications chapter in it. I think it is extremely valuable knowledge for you to have Blacksmith Publishing, my two very good friends, Paul Lefevre and Mike Blackburn, uh, absolute legends in Special Forces, and they wrote the Small Unit Tactics Handbook, or the, the SF 
Q course for the small unit tactics course. I've had them on the podcast. I'm going to have the distinct honor of being on with them tomorrow. Uh, so you can look for that podcast. It's going to be up next week. We're going to be talking about economics and getting yourselves prepared and a little bit about communications as well. Last, certainly not least tacticalwisdom.com. My close friend, Joe Dolio with his four volume tactical wisdom series that is both available on Amazon as well as his website and the address for the brand new brush beater store is brushbeater.store. That is brushbeater.store. Definitely go over there. Got logo gear. Going to have a lot more gear that is going to be going up in the coming weeks. Shirts, Books, patches, infrared patches, and I've got a lot of other really cool products that are going to be coming out soon. And, um, you know, with that said, got another book out as well. The Guerrilla Dispatch Volume 1 is out as a number one new title in survival and preparedness. It is a collection of some of the best articles from myself and the other contributors over on AmericanPartisan.org. And Volume 2 is going to be coming out very, very soon. Uh, just after the beginning of April is, is the target deadline for that. It's in the middle of final editing right now, and I'm really excited to get that turned out to all of you out there. Anyway, with that said, Matt, brother, it has been an absolute honor having you on the air with us. God bless. God bless. Thanks for having me. All right. This is NC Scout. Out.